Good morning and welcome. We're here today to hear argument in the case of State of Indiana Appellant versus 2,435 in U.S. currency and Alucius Q. Kaiser Appellee. It is a criminal transfer case. The Appellant State of Indiana will argue first. Transfer has been granted. Representing the State of Indiana at council table, we have Andrew Kobe. Oh, we have Andrew. You're always over there, aren't you? I know. Sorry, it's instinct. We have Andrew Kobe, and sitting at council table, we have Gail Palmer, the deputy prosecuting attorney. Welcome, Ms. Palmer. Representing Lucius Kaiser at council table, we have Sam Gedge. Good morning. Welcome, Mr. Gedge, and Anna Goodman. Good morning, and welcome, Ms. Goodman. Councils, we've been conducting oral arguments. We generally give you about two minutes before we we may start asking questions. Are you ready to proceed? All right, Mr. Kobe. May it please the court, I have reserved four minutes for rebuttal. The trial court erred in finding that Kaiser is entitled to a jury trial in this proceeding. The state seeks to forfeit the money seized under Indiana Code 34242. The procedure for forfeiture under that chapter provides that the trial court will decide the issues. The trial court found that Kaiser had a right to a jury trial in this civil forfeiture proceeding, implicitly finding that the statute violated the Constitution. This is a question that the court decides de novo. It is presumed that statutes are constitutional. The burden is on Kaiser to rebut that presumption. To show that the statute as applies to him is unconstitutional, Kaiser needs to show two things. One, that a person in his position was entitled to a jury trial at common law before 1852, and if the right existed before 1852, that the statute does not modify that common law right. Kaiser does not show either. When the state seeks to forfeit contraband, Kaiser concedes that a person is not entitled to a jury trial. Here, the state seeks to forfeit contraband, namely the proceeds from drug dealing, something Kaiser cannot legally possess and has no legal title to. So even by Kaiser's theory, he is not entitled to a jury trial. Additionally, civil forfeiture of proceeds from drug dealing is disgorgement of ill-gotten gains, which is an equitable remedy and a jury does not, trial does not attach. Either way, Kaiser would not be entitled to a jury trial at common law before 1852. The state alleged alternatively that the money was to be used to buy more drugs. It is this basis for forfeiture that Kaiser is really disputing. However, Kaiser's arguments still fail. First, money used as an instrumentality is not like a vehicle or real property. Kaiser has pointed to no discussion on forfeiting money as an instrumentality before 1852. Even if forfeiting money is an as an instrumentality is entitled to a jury trial, it is a subsidiary question to the equitable question of disgorgement. Because the proceeds is the core question here uh, of the forfeiture, any, any issue of use should follow that equitable question. If we but, don't find, if we don't find that um, this money is contraband per, per se, but rather uh, perhaps derivative contraband, and we find that this type of cause was tried before June 18th, 1852, do you lose? No. Uh, because uh, I think that gets to the third point of that this is a special that I didn't reach in my opening, but that this is a special statutory proceeding that the legislature can provide for the forfeiture of drug proceeds. There, there are states, and looking at, there's roughly around 15 states that allow jury trials in this, and including cash, and some of those were cash cases along cash and property. So that's the majority position out there right now, correct? 
Well, I think the majority position uh, in those 14 states is when we're dealing with an instrumentality such as a vehicle or real property, okay, then but, there but is several a, of those were cash. Um, South well, they, Carolina was $7,823 cash. Then um, Oklahoma was $12,000 cash. When you when you look at when you look at the, what the cases are discussing, Maven's cash. I mean, yeah. there's even those even though even though some of the uh, some of the states that provide for a jury trial, cash was included. The discussion in the cases is about vehicles and or real property, not the cash. The cash is something extra. And if you look at the cases that are specifically discussing cash, most of those are the states that. Uh, have decided that you don't get a jury trial right to. So if they took Mr. Kaiser's car and his cash, he would have a right to a jury trial? Well, he'd have different arguments, I think, to But would you agree he would have a things. right to, he would have a stronger, stronger case then for a right to jury trial? Towards the vehicle than the money, yes. So you would, I think you'd have to right. separate, so you want the rule in Indiana to be you separate the cash. I understand when it's the drugs itself or if it's the stolen item itself, and that's the sort of definition of contraband per, per se. Well, I think that, again, that I think first we need to decide uh, whether money can be contraband per se or whether it's always an instrumentality. Uh, and so money as proceeds of drug dealing is contraband, and so it doesn't get into that question of what we do with instrumentalities. So if you buy a car with the money that you get from drug dealing, would the car also be contraband? I think it could be traced as proceeds of the of the drug dealing if you could if the if the drug dealer sold the drugs, took the cash that he made, and went and bought a car. Uh, that would be the same as the cash because it's proceeds. I have a procedural question, Mr. Kobe. Why is this not simply an in rem action against the cash, but also an in personam action against Mr. Kaiser? Because that's not the way we've set up the legislature set up forfeiture uh, for the cash here. Uh, are, you saying, are you saying that the statute requires that the, the person whose cash is implicated must be named as well? I mean, what, no, in other words, what relief do you want from Mr. Kaiser? I, I think the difference between uh, why, why that distinction is important is if it's an impersonum uh, proceeding, then, then the person brings with them some rights. Um, so if you're, uh, for criminal forfeiture, for example, is an impersonum proceeding that follows the criminal conviction. So. Uh, a person who at forfeiture is being sought to them in personam gets all the rights of the criminal forfeiture, or gets all the rights of the criminal proceeding along with that. Whereas we have an in case. What? That's not this case, of course. So right, I'm just right. And why so is he the defendant here? Well, I think here the way we have it set up is that uh, the action is rent, is in rem against the property, and Mr. Kaiser is coming forward and saying he's entitled to the property. Uh, he wouldn't have to be involved. Um, if he didn't want to be. Um, it's him, he's the one coming forward and saying he has title to the Is property. Is he not named by the state in the, in the, in the first instance? Well, I, I think so, because uh, the procedure requires the state to name anybody that may be an owner uh, so that they can come in and have notice of the case and assert their claim if they want to. But the proceeding can proceed without Mr. Kaiser. He's not a necessary party. Does the statute, I'm sorry, forbid a jury trial or does it simply not provide for one? It's not provided for. It doesn't explicitly say that no jury trial shall be, but the statute says that the judge shall make the finding, so it doesn't anticipate a jury trial in any way. Counsel, um, set aside the, your uh, special statutory proceeding argument for a moment and kind of take me back to, to a time um, when we had both courts of law and courts of equity and um, how that affects um, the, the uh, 
outcome and calculation here? So I, I think that, that uh, the case law does show that uh, at the time of the founding, seizure of vessels or goods uh, that were in violation of the customs and revenue laws uh, were tried, depending on where the, the property or the vessel was found, either in admiralty, in equity, or uh, at law um, on land. Um, but only that sort of civil forfeiture. And I think it's important to remember that our statutes, and even this particular statute, has forfeiture of all kinds of property. Uh, we're not just talking about money and cars. They're, you know, destructive devices, illegal telecommunication devices. So, and there are other statutes, not this, this statute, that deal with forfeiture of property. Uh, so it's, it's not, it's, uh, it's a very much of an overstatement to say that anytime the state forfeits something, uh, you have a right to a jury trial because the case law just doesn't say that. Well, we long ago did away with the distinction between law and equity, right? I mean, the, the, the rule two of our rules of trial procedure state that there should be one form of action to be known as civil action. And our state constitution says in all civil cases, the right of trial by jury shall remain inviolate. Why, does, why doesn't rule two answer this question for us? Well, I think because uh, starting in 1857, this court has said what that provision of the Constitution means is not just cases that aren't criminal, but cases that you, an individual had a jury trial right at the time that the Constitution was passed. So it's always, this court has always understood that, and it's all the way back to 1857, and always maintained that. If we subsequently change the definition of, of uh, civil action, that has no effect on, uh, on your analysis. I'm trying to uh, figure out what it, it, different arguments it may affect differently. Um, I think on the, on the contraband of proceeds, it doesn't uh, have any effect. Uh, but I think it would, if this court changed the definition of civil, it wouldn't even, it wouldn't just affect forfeiture, but it would affect all civil cases. So, uh, for example, dissolution of property during a dissolution of a marriage right now is tried to the court instead of a jury. If this court changed the definition of civil uh, that it's used uh, the whole time of the history of our state, then that would also raise questions into all the all the types of civil cases that, that are tried to the bench and not to a jury. So I'm looking at it, looking at our, uh, what we, at the the Constitution and adopting the common law, incorporating that into, I find all the cases for in rem forfeitures from 18, before 1852 were all done pursuant to the right to jury trial on land. All forfeitures on land were done by jury. So if, if we just, if we find that, You know, that's a historical basis for saying that there is a jury trial right. And that's what a lot of states, I mean, I've studied all the other states, their constitution, their language, how they made that finding and, and what they find. And I understand your special statutory, but if, but if we take that to the next step, then any other sort of special statutory um, cause that is, you know, you would say there would not be a jury trial, which goes against the jury trial that, that right being in, inviolate. So if we find that in rem forfeitures happening on land were all done to a jury in 1852, how do, how do we get around the um, particular 
wording of the Constitution, our legislature codifying those principles. Um, they codified those principles in 1881, saying issues of law and issues of fact and causes that prior to the 18th day of June, 1852, of exclusive equitable jurisdiction shall be tried by the court. I can't get, I, I'm, help me get around that to understand your position. I, uh, first of all, I think that's taking a very broad uh, definition of civil forfeitures, saying that all civil forfeitures were in rem. The civil forfeitures in rem at the time of the founding were of vessels and goods and violations of the customs and revenue laws. They didn't cover other types of civil forfeitures for diseased animals or uh, other types of contraband property. Uh, those forfeitures, or liquor, as this court uh, in 1907 said that you can forfeit and take liquor on land uh, pursuant to the statute and you don't get a jury trial right. So I think that uh, only by giving civil forfeiture a very, um, very broad definition and not limiting it to its historical basis, you get there. Uh, and in no time uh, during the founding has, have they pointed to any cases that involve currency as proceeds of illegal activity. That is a new uh, thing that the legislature has done uh, just recently, I mean, in, in this discussion recent in 1981. Council, what was the reason at the time of the founding for treating diseased animals different than illegal wine so that we can try to apply that reasoning to what the thinking would be for cash and why cash is like a diseased animal but not like important? Well, I, I think they looked at, uh, I don't think those were different. I think that it, contraband was the question is, was this something legally to possess and own? Um, if it's something legally to possess and own, then it's not contraband, it's something else, and we'll look at uh, what type of thing it is and what the state's doing. Are they looking to abate a public nuisance? Are they doing something else? Um, but contraband, historic, there is no historic uh, basis for saying that you have a jury trial right to the seizure and forfeiture of contraband. Uh, and that's what the proceeds are here. Which of our precedents, in your view, provides the best test of what we ought to be assessing here for purposes of deciding whether there's a jury trial right? Uh, again, I think I'm offering multiple uh, theories, um, and so it's difficult to give one case that, uh, that uses all theories uh, for that basis. Uh, the Campbell case uses the special statutory proceeding as a basis. That's available. Uh, this court's, all this court's uh, decisions on disgorgement of ill-gotten gains, uh, that that's remedial and equitable, uh, and you don't get a jury trial right. So in the example of unauthorized practice of law, disgorgement of profits from that is equitable, you don't get a jury trial right. Um, fiduciary, violation of fiduciary duties uh, is subject to disgorgement, uh, and that's equitable. Um, and uh, as far as uh, contraband, uh, I think there's no question that uh, he has no legal title to uh, <clears throat> profits from illegal activity, uh, that he doesn't have any legal right to possess that. That's longstanding that the court doesn't enforce uh, illegal contracts or criminal contracts. What makes cash so equitable? What makes cash so equitable as, as, as compared to... to a it's not, the, it's not the cash, it's the disgorgement that makes it equitable, that, the, that this cash is ill-gotten gains, that it's proceeds from criminal activity. Of course, if, uh, if, the, if they seize cash that had no connection to uh, drug dealing at all, um, you know, cash found somewhere else that's unconnected to um, 
to drug dealing that the state couldn't prove. It's not the fact that it's cash. It's the fact that it's the scourgement of ill-gotten gains, which the statute uh, makes, if it's found on the person or next to the drugs while he's dealing drugs, it's prima facie evidence that it is proceeds. <coughs> so the statute has a presumption that it is contraband. But, but your test seemed to suggest that the merits of the underlying action dictate whether or not the, the, there's a jury trial right. Doesn't, doesn't that get things backward? No, because here, uh, what, he, what, a, what the fact finder has to decide is whether these are proceeds or not, not whether there's something else. Uh, and the proceeds would be contraband. So what if the, pro, what if the judge, under, under the prevailing statute, the judge concludes it's the, they're not proceeds? Then the state can't, then he wins and he gets the money back. But that determination is made not by a judge, but by, I'm sorry, not by a jury, but by the a judicial officer. Correct. And, and that's how, um, that's the difference of whether the, the issue is decided by a judge or a jury. Uh, I'm not. Like it goes back to my question. The, the merits of the underlying claim dictates whether or not there's a judge. No, the allegation that they're proceeds is what dictate whether he gets a, a, a bench trial or a jury trial. So I thought you were focusing, focusing on the merits and not the sorry. allegation. I, it's that it's the allegation. Okay. I'll remain whatever I. Mr. Cooper, we'll hear from you again on rebuttal. Mr. Gedge. Thank you, Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Article 1, Section 20 secures a right that predates Indiana itself, the right to a civil jury trial as that right existed at English common law in the late 1700s. Analogizing to that same body of common law, the federal courts, of course, have held that modern civil forfeiture defendants in federal court are entitled to a trial by jury under the analogous Seventh Amendment. Every state high court to have grappled seriously with the historical record has reached the same conclusion under their own state's constitutions. <clears throat> the state today does not dispute that historical record. The state does not dispute that the same body of common law that informs all of those decisions is the same common law that applies to Article I, Section 20. Rather, the state's position, I think, boils down to three positions, all of them fundamentally flawed. The first I'll touch on briefly, money isn't contraband. We can all possess money legally, so it's not contraband. Um, I think there's a reason that's the, the first time we're hearing that is this morning. Uh, but the two, I think, more serious arguments that the state presents is first, putting a lot of weight on the fact that this case involves currency rather than a car or a house or a, a cask of wine. But money is property. Uh, just like a car, and an action to forfeit it on behalf of the government, for the government, is an action at law, not in equity, so the jury trial right attaches. The state is wrong, too, when it suggests that a civil forfeiture action is a so-called statutory proceeding. Uh, as the state, I think, agrees, uh, pages 13 and 14 of its transfer opposition, the fact that a cause of action is codified in a statute does not exempt it from Article I, Section 20, Rather, if it's the type of claim, if it involves the type of relief that would have been triable to a jury at common law, then it's triable to a jury today. Why is this not akin to a disgorgement action? Because, Your Honor, one of the defining features of disgorgement or restitution is not just that profits or property is being taken from a wrongdoer, but that it's being given to the victim. And here, the civil forfeiture statute 
takes property that they say is proceeds or, or other uh, or other aspects. They don't give it to to, to victims of, of Mr. Kreiser's alleged crimes. They keep it for themselves and they distribute it to the prosecutor and the police uh, and other government agencies. And I'll point. So, under your theory of the case, if the state's um, forfeiture of, of cash or other assets were to be distributed elsewhere to to, to recompense victims, for example, there would be no jury trial right in your view? So I think we'd have a much harder case if the statute provided uh, basically kind of classic equitable restitution, where if someone has illegal profits, there's a statute where the government sues that person, takes that money, and gives it to the injured victim of that wrongdoer. Uh, but that is not what we have in the civil forfeiture statute. Um, and on this point, we cite these cases in our brief, but I think they're really on point. They're from the U.S. Supreme Court, but the equitable and common law principles, I think, translate here. Uh, the Lou versus SEC case from, I think, 2018, uh, the Tull versus United States case from 1989. In both of those cases, the court really honed in on the common law equitable distinction when it comes to the government taking people's stuff and made the point that we really can't cast this kind of thing as restitution or disgorgement when the government's taking the stuff and keeping it for itself. Um, now, I think that the state's other uh, kind of main focus on the, what it views as the unique quality of currency, setting aside the contraband issue, which I'm happy to discuss if, if necessary. But the government's other main argument on that point is that currency is just different because if you go back to historical civil forfeiture statutes, they don't talk about currency, they talk about ships and, and casks of wine. Um, and the state seems to view that as a really dispositive distinction. Uh, I, I don't find that all that persuasive uh, because while it is certainly true that in recent decades, legislatures nationwide have expanded the types of property that are subject to in-rem forfeitures. The fundamental legal remedy uh, that the legislatures are embodying is the same kind of legal remedy that we see Chief Justice Marshall talking about in 1823, where the government is taking people's stuff on land because of its alleged link to a statutory violation. So you know, there were no uh, forfeitures of airplanes in the 1850s. There were no forfeitures of cars. Uh, but my friend Mr. Kobe appears to concede that if they were trying to forfeit Mr. Kaiser's airplane, he probably would get a jury trial here. Uh, so clearly the analysis can't be, is this precise type of property, was it subject to forfeiture in 1787? Uh, did it exist in 1787? Rather, the fundamental question, and I don't understand the state to disagree with us on this point, is not so much an exercise in historical archaeology, but a more fundamental question about whether the relief, you know, the claim at issue here is one that would have fallen on the law side of the spectrum or on the equity side of the spectrum. Would it have been tried in the courts of exchequer or in the courts of chancery? And here, uh, setting aside the government's disgorgement argument, which I think is answered by cases like Lew and Tull, the state doesn't really have any answer uh, to the historical record where you have you know, Justice Story and Chief Justice Marshall and the Seventh Circuit and all of these courts that I won't belabor, all of them saying, you know, we have centuries of historical precedent saying that when the government is trying to take your property on land because of its link to a statutory violation, then of course those are tried to juries in common law courts. You're, you're not saying, or you're not asking that any section of the civil forfeiture statute be considered unconstitutional, are you? Absolutely not, Chief Justice. And I'll, I'll say as a threshold matter that if the court were to, were to conclude that there were a conflict between the statute and Article I, Section 20, you know, our submission would be that the, the Constitution trumps that. Um, but to answer your question directly, no, I think the court here can rule for Mr. Kaiser without casting doubt on a single word in the civil forfeiture statute. My friend Mr. Kobe acknowledges, I think, that the statute doesn't explicitly bar a jury trial. Uh, I, 
I, I agree with that. I think the statute is best understood as silent on that point. Now, in the state's brief, they do put some weight on the fact that Section 4 of the Civil Forfeiture Statute contemplates trial courts entering a judgment or entering an order uh, in favor of one party or the other after the trial. Now, the state suggests in its brief that that reference to judgment and orders necessarily forecloses having the jury as a fact finder in that process. But trial judges enter judgments at the end of jury trials just as they enter judgments at the end of bench trials. That's what trial judges do. Um, so there's no necessary conflict between that statutory language in Section 4 and having uh, the jury as a fact finder at the, the civil forfeiture trial. Uh, the one other point I'll, I'll, I'll say on that, if I may, is that I, I think if we're kind of talking about the statute and whether there is a conflict, I think the most that the state could get would, would be ambiguity. I, I don't think the state can even get that far because the statute is silent. But if we're in the zone of ambiguity, then of course all of the principles of constitutional avoidance would come into play and uh, you know, the court would be well positioned to try to harmonize any ambiguity in the statute with Article 1, Section 20. Um, and confirmed that there, of course, is a right to a jury trial. Mr. Gedge, um, separate and apart from this, if we end up agreeing with you, just from a practical standpoint, those state Supreme Courts that have examined this issue and found a right, responsible for uh, you know, development of the state court system, what does it look like to have a, a jury trial context what, what what do other states do do they have uh, just a, a bifurcated proceeding do they have it included within the the case in chief of the criminal case or, or, or must there be is there typically a separate proceeding altogether because it is a real practical concern about how this happens uh, given a finite judicial resources Sure. So it would be a separate proceeding, Justice Goff. Um, and in Indiana, as in many of the states that we've cataloged in our petition, the civil forfeiture proceeding is wholly separate from the criminal court action. Um, and so typically what happens here in Indiana is that when there is a pending criminal proceeding that might implicate the same underlying conflict, that criminal case goes forward, the civil forfeiture's case is stayed to avoid implicated, implicating Fifth Amendment rights, for example, and then whatever, once the criminal case is over, then the civil forfeiture case kind of amps up again and it goes to trial. Um, I, I'll give you an example. Um, the, the, the Tim's case, which this court heard a couple of years ago, uh, operated in that fashion where it was stayed for a couple of years after the criminal case was resolved, it went to a trial. Now, the trier effect in that case happened to be a judge, not a jury, um, but I think that that explains kind of how the, the situation would, would play out. Let me ask you another way. Must it? Must it? If you had a county, there's lots of them that don't have enough attorneys, that don't have an, enough time, can you envision a system wherein uh, the Constitution would be satisfied? We know this is an issue as the attorneys trying the case, and, and this is something that we're going to put to the same jury as the criminal offense itself. So I think. Indiana could probably create a system that does what you're envisioning. And I say that because in the federal system, that is how it works when it comes to criminal forfeitures rather than civil in-rem forfeitures. So the federal system has kind of two separate kinds of forfeitures. One is part of the criminal action, and one, like Indiana's, is on the civil side. And for criminal forfeitures, it proceeds in the way that, that you suggest, where um, under, I think, federal rule of criminal procedure 32.2, the jury sticks around after the, the criminal verdict and they try uh, the fact issues relating to the criminal forfeiture. I think because the legislature in Indiana has elected not to, do criminal forfeiture, uh, you know, with all the extra protections that go to property rights that, that go along with that. 
I, I think we're in a situation where the cases proceed on parallel tracks because that's just the nature of having one case being criminal if there is a criminal case and another case being being civil. But the legislature can certainly act to adjust that if it feels. Counsel, like would we have to overturn the Campbell case for you to prevail? Absolutely not. Why not, Justice Massa? Because just borrowing from the state's own account of Campbell in its 1908 brief, uh, which we cite in our reply brief, uh, the state, I think, persuasively argued in 1908 that Campbell is akin to a nuisance abatement action. And historically, nuisance abatement actions were never tried to juries in common law courts. Those fell squarely on the equity side of the line. Uh, by contrast, of course, civil and rem forfeitures like this one fell on the diametrically opposite end of that spectrum, right uh, in the heartland of common law litigation. I thought you argued in your briefing that Campbell was distinguishable because it involved contraband. But it really wasn't contraband, right? It wasn't, this was a, that was a pre-prohibition case. It wasn't illegal to, to possess alcohol. What was going on there was it was being sold without a, a proper permitting, right? But it wasn't contraband. That's right. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, so yes, with the preface that I do not feel the need to die on the hill of Campbell as contraband, um, we certainly stand by our position that if we were to get into a time machine and go back to 1909, I imagine the justices of this court and the state's attorneys would have characterized it as a contraband case. And I say that uh, in part because the state in its briefing in Campbell was citing to cases that were explicitly contraband cases. Um, but. I, I'm equally happy to, to kind of buy into the state's own contemporary account of Campbell in its Campbell brief as, uh, I think, to, to quote it directly, in the nature of an action to abate a public nuisance. Um, I'm fine with that. And if we do the kind of historical analysis under Article 1, Section 20, um, you know, actions to abate public nuisances, I'm confident, would have fallen on the equity side of the line. If we do that same historical analysis for civil in-rem forfeitures on land for statutory violations, which is this case, it falls on the other side of the line. So the, the only other thing I'll say about Campbell is that, of course, we're hampered a little bit by the fact that we're talking about one sentence uh, in an opinion where the appellant apparently didn't actually argue the issue before this court. Um, so for that reason, too, you know, I, I would resist the urge to try to overread Campbell. The one thing we know from Campbell, um, based on that one sentence, is that that specific temperance law uh, did not implicate Article 1, Section 20. And I think construing the court's argument in light of the state's argument in that case to be treating the litigation as a nuisance abatement action is an easy way to harmonize that decision with uh, a ruling for Mr. Kaiser here. Council, one more practical question following up on Justice Goff's line of inquiry. How does the plea bargaining uh, typically work? Can, can the state resolve the two cases at the same time, or are they not able to resolve the, the civil case until the criminal case is over under the unconstitutional um, conditions doctrine? So I don't know that it's an unconstitutional conditions issue, Your Honor. Um, I, I will tell you that um, the practice in Indiana is to try to maintain a kind of a pretty strict separation between the criminal side and the civil side um, in contingency fee contracts for the 40 state, 40 counties or so that have private lawyers. Many of those contracts explicitly say, you know, there can be no plea bargaining uh, around it. And the reason for that harkens back to this course 2011 decision uh, in Ray McKinney, uh, where there was a real concern that you had a criminal prosecutor kind of using criminal leverage to extract money on the civil side. Um, so the short answer is that, that no, in Indiana, at least there, there's not really a role for plea bargaining when it comes to civil forfeiture. Um, I guess I'll, I'll just touch on, on one other point that, that my friend Mr. Kobe mentioned in, in passing, which is the lopsided minority of courts that have gone the other way on this. Uh, Mr. Kobe 
point out that a couple of those cases happen to involve currency. Uh, you know, for, for all the flaws in those uh, decisions, uh, the courts in, in none of those cases suggested that there was any kind of dispositive and I think unworkable distinction between forfeitures of currency versus forfeitures of cash, or not cash, of, of, of homes or cars or any other kind of property. Um, I, know, I, I don't find you know, cases like Georgia and North Dakota and Tennessee all that persuasive uh, because the analysis, I think, that the courts were applying in those decisions is fundamentally different from the analysis that we see courts in Indiana applying for Article I, Section 20, and it's fundamentally different from the analysis that I think even the state concedes is the proper mode of analysis for Article I, Section 20. Uh, because if you look at Georgia and North Dakota, for example, which I'm highlighting because I think they're kind of the headliners of that, that minority set of jurisdictions, they weren't engaging in the kind of exercise of historical analogy that we're talking about in Indiana cases uh, for Article I, Section 20. Uh, they weren't really looking at whether historically a type of claim or a type of relief would fall on the law side or the equity side. Now, for those states, they really viewed their state constitutional provisions as frozen in time. So Georgia, for example, says uh, a slim majority of the Georgia Supreme Court says, well, of course, there were no drug forfeiture statutes in 1798 here in Georgia, so it's game over. Um, and North Dakota said something similar. The Tennessee Supreme Court said, yeah, all, all these other courts go the other way, but that's because they look to the English common law. What we in Tennessee do is we look to the parochial North Carolina common law that was in existence in the 1790s, and so we can't go the way of that, that majority set of states. Um, so which, which state do you think we should look at? What, what decision from what state is you feel like most relevant here? I mean, I would be happy for the court to accept any of the 16 or so that we've cited. I think the most helpful ones would be probably the California Supreme Court decision, the New Jersey Supreme Court decision, uh, Judge Dumball's decision for the Seventh Circuit and the Mercedes-Benz case, I think is kind of the gold standard when it comes to kind of doing the heavy lifting when it comes to determining kind of what the historical record is. Um, but so those are the ones I would look to um, for, for, for a lead on that. Um, the, I guess, one uh, final thing I would say is, is that, of course, if, if the court disagrees with us on, on everything that I've said about Article I, Section 20, um, that directly tees up our alternative Seventh Amendment argument. Um, you know, we acknowledge that under current U.S. Supreme Court precedent, we are not entitled to win on that alternative argument today, uh, but we are, however, entitled uh, to have this court say that we don't win on that argument today uh, so that we can seek further relief on that federal question from the U.S. Supreme Court. Are you entitled to have that statement? When, when, that, when the federal claim wasn't raised below. Why, well, Your Honor, why is that I, something we need to address at all, I guess? Sure. Question. So I, I guess I'd resist the premise of that. Um, if we look at cases like Colin Asset Realty from 2020, for example, I think applying you know, the waiver and forfeiture um, uh, principles that we see in that case and others, the issue absolutely was raised sufficiently below. Uh, the main concern foremost is notice. Right? Are we sandbagging the other side with, it, with a new argument on appeal? And here, the state affirmatively introduced the Seventh Amendment argument in its motion to strike the jury demand. It said, correctly, under current U.S. Supreme Court precedent, that the Seventh Amendment doesn't apply to the states. Uh, the trial court at page three, I believe, of its order said, the Seventh Amendment doesn't apply to the states. Uh, no amount of briefing would change that reality. We're not asking this court to change that reality. Um, but it is an absolutely valid alternative basis for affirmance. Um, it's one that this court can't grant us today, but it's fairly presented. Uh, and for that reason, we're certainly entitled uh, to the court for the court to, to say that, even if only a, you know, a summary sentence or two, because I don't think it merits more than that. Um, to be clear, though, Justice Slaughter, I, I certainly think the most straightforward way to resolve this appeal is to do it on Article I, Section 20 grounds alone. Um, you know, we would ask that 
this court aligned itself with those 15 or 16 states and the many federal courts nationwide that hear jury trials in forfeiture cases all the time. Uh, and unless the court has any further questions, we would ask that uh, the trial court's order be affirmed. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Gedge. Mr. Kobe rebuttal. Just four uh, quick points. Uh, just going to the last one first. Uh, while the Seventh Amendment uh, was discussed below, there was, there's been no development of that the Seventh Amendment should apply to the states or how it would apply to the states. And that's the real forfeiture of the claim, that there's been no development of so that it should apply or, or how it should so apply. So the, the fact it was said, the trial court order, which is being appealed, said there, there's not a Seventh Amendment right. The motion to strike from the states said there's not a Seventh Amendment right. What more should have been done? The defendant should have, or sorry, not the defendant, but Mr. Kaiser should have challenged that and said, yes, I know that that's the law, but here's why the law should be changed. Here's why that, that doesn't dissolve, dispose of the issue. Uh, on the proceeds issue, we heard no discussion of whether proceeds was covered by civil forfeiture uh, in the founding era or not. There was no discussion of that because proceeds was not. Here we're dealing with proceeds. And when you look at the statute that we're talking about, the statute covers a lot of different kinds of property. And so what Mr. Kaiser wants to say is, because vehicles may be subject to a jury trial right, then every other property covered by the statute gets a jury trial right too. But that's not, uh, that's not what the law says uh, for contraband that's listed in the statute. So, we, so, so it adds a level of complexity that I don't see in the law with regard to, is the cash derivative? Um, and you're saying that the cash would be derivative, correct? Well, I, I would say it's proceeds, yes. It's okay. traceable proceeds. And the car could be, the house could be, clothes. I mean, there, there are all kinds of things that could be things derivative of but almost, But almost all the cases, I think all the cases, uh, none of them are proceeds cases. They're all that the car was used to transport the drugs or but the, the person dealt side, the drugs other cases out of the are, house. The, the contraband... Uh, per se, deal with the drugs. Like he's not asking for the drugs back, or so. But 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 there, he's offered no. Mr. Kaiser's offered no distinction. It would apply equally to the drugs because that's taking property from him that the government's taking. So, but the drugs right a, would apply. But and the drugs in a, hasn't. The drugs in and of themselves um, are illegal. Cash only having cash well, no, in and well, of itself is not illegal. I think, the, I think a good thing to compare to is prescription drugs. A lot of people have hydrocodone legally in their house, but if you don't have a valid prescription to the hydrocodone and you have it in your house, that's contraband. Uh, so, and the liquor in Campbell was contraband, not because liquor was illegal, but because this particular set of liquor was illegal because he didn't have a license. I just want to say one thing about disgorgement. Both the cases cited, Lou and Toll, don't stand for the proposition that Mr. Kaiser wants uh, this court to look at them for. Toll was a civil penalties case involving a violation of the Clean Water Act. It did not involve disgorgement. Uh, and Lou, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court was looking at how to interpret the SEC statutes and what uh, equitable disgorgement under the statute meant, not deciding for all times what disgorgement uh, means uh, as a remedy. Uh, this court repeatedly uses disgorgement in um, in all types of cases, whether it even is in the loss, like Minnick. Excuse me. I wanted to ask you about the Seventh Amendment. And if this is going where it's probably going to go, and this is an, an effort to really nationalize this issue, 
he's asking us to say they lose on it. We've been through this in a similar situation before. What's what's the harm in that? I mean, the record's not developed now, but if he's conceding that they don't win on the Seventh Amendment, why not acknowledge that and then let the state uh, give their best argument in front of uh, a federal court? Well, I, I just don't think that's a well use of resources of this court to, to say that uh, review a decision that we don't decide on. So this court would just, is not deciding the issue of whether the Seventh Amendment should apply, whether it, how it would apply, if it did apply. It's just saying uh, it doesn't apply, and so then review that decision. Uh, and that's not a reasoned decision. And so because it hasn't been developed, this court shouldn't use its resources uh, to decide that question uh, and should decide the question that's squarely presented, which is the Article One, Section 20 question. Thank you, Mr. Kobe. Well, counsel, on behalf of my colleagues, I want to commend you both. Excellent argument today, excellent briefing. We will be discussing the, um, this case and issuing opinion in due course. Ends the oral argument. Thank you. All right.